Hello and welcome to the Independent Research Forum's Research and Markets podcast with me, JP Smith. Today I'm going to highlight some of the recent analysis and views produced by the IRF's team of best-in-class institutional investment research providers and identify the burning issues for financial markets, hopefully before they become part of the mainstream narrative and are priced in. Today, I'm going to focus on the Chinese reopening from COVID zero and the latest developments in the Russia-Ukraine conflict, and in particular, the impact on the outlook for energy prices, which strikes me as even more critical than usual at the present time. And then finally, I'll summarise the debate around the overall direction of financial markets in 2023, according to our providers. So let's begin with China and the total abandonment of the COVID zero policy in early December and its replacement by a sort of accelerated herd immunity. Whilst it's true to say that no one I'm aware of predicted this development, A number of IRF providers were buyers of Chinese financial assets, especially equities at the start of November, since when MSCO China is up around 45%. Michael Howell's cross-border capital and Manoj Pradham's talking head macro were two of the most prominent and timely advocates of going long China assets against the overwhelming consensus at the time. So more about their current thinking later. But rowing back for a moment to the big picture, Just why did Beijing execute such a dramatic reversal? There are good reasons to think that this was mainly due to the increasingly dire state of the economy, and in particular the travails of the property market and the impact on local government debt, which threatened a financial and fiscal crisis, as well as the sharp rise in unemployment, especially among recent graduates, which is believed to be one of the key metrics followed by the Chinese leadership. Indeed, as I've highlighted in previous government and market podcasts, a number of research firms who have the most acute insights into China and are the closest to the country are among the most pessimistic concerning its secular prospects in terms of the policy outlook and the economy. One example is Paul Hodges, who follows the chemical industry and looks at it in the context of what's happening in China in his most recent PH report. And he believes that the government faces a serious problem of dealing with the debt that it's created in the real estate sector, which was around 29% of GDP at its peak, as well as the linkages to financial firms and to industrial companies as well. So you have this sort of triangulation of debt emanating from property into industry, local government, and financial firms. And he's been concerned that the end of the China bubble risks a Minsky moment where Chinese buyers suddenly realise that they've overpaid for their properties and run en masse for the exits. And it is just conceivable that the leadership in Beijing reached a similar conclusion, and that's why they so abruptly abandoned the COVID zero policy. And obviously the protests were part of that, but they were approximate rather than underlying cause. So one can clearly identify some very negative secular trends in terms of Chinese growth because of demographic pressures, deglobalization, and also the difficulty for the Chinese leadership in implementing economic reforms, which wouldn't dilute the control of the Communist Party. Jonathan Anderson from Emerging Advisors is one of the most astute commentators and analysts of the Chinese economy. And he describes, and is very honest in doing this, describes the outlook 
as decidedly murky. Like most people, he believes that the epidemic will broadly be over by February, with the true recovery beginning in March and April. But after that, the outlook is very, very unclear. It's obvious that mobility-related services will rebound dramatically through much of the rest of the year. But the external environment, the recession or likely recession in a lot of developed economies, is decidedly unhelpful for the export outlook from China. And also, although the Chinese authorities will pursue expansionary credit and fiscal policies, the stimulus efforts won't necessarily stick, in John's words, without a sharp property recovery. Infrastructure alone, he believes, is not big enough and never has been. So once again, the outlook in China comes down largely to what happens in the property sector. And as John says, the bare argument is that sentiment has been brutalized over the past 18 months by falling prices, which may have decisively broken the psychology of the potential Chinese buyer of property. And of course, this has implications in terms, as I said before, of local government and industry as well. In any case, the message is clear. More than anything else, watch the Chinese property market over the course of this year. There's another dimension to the Chinese outlook and policy as well, namely the extent to which the authorities in Beijing are prepared to dilute or even to reverse the shift towards more state control over the corporate sector. This having been evident since at least 2014, and in my view is probably the key reason behind the poor performance of both the Chinese economy and the equity market over recent years relative to the expectations that were prevailing in the wake of the GST. It's also been probably the main cause of the break with the and increased tensions with the West, in particular the US. Against this backdrop, it's possible that Xi Jinping's administration might also wish to build bridges with the West to safeguard access to trade, investment and technology, all of which are now under pressure and being restricted due to pressure from the US administration. And of course, the Chinese leadership will have noted the appallingly poor performance of the China, of the Russian military facing Western weaponry in the Ukraine. And again, they, this may drive them to amend their policy to become less overtly hostile to the West and maybe to revive the bold policy of biding their time until the economy, technology and military are strong enough to present a real challenge to the Western forces. This perception that governance is likely to shift and that there has been an incremental change in policy from Beijing is the major reason for the surge in prices of Chinese technology stocks led by Tencent and Alibaba. One analyst who follows policy developments very closely is William Hess at China Macro. Regarding governance, he believes that the markets have now overplayed Xi Jinping's pending policy reversal on big tech. He believes the next three months will be a critical period for policymakers to deliver tangible regulatory changes beyond an ant financial IPO to back up messaging for the private sector that says, we need your capital and please create more jobs. In William's view, the political commitment behind regulatory backtracking is half-hearted and it remains unclear how the leadership will rebalance its security obsession with even limited deregulation for big tech. A rather more dramatic view comes from David Murrin of Global Forecaster, 
on a much bigger picture basis. He's far from sanguine about the direction of Chinese policy, especially with regard to geopolitics. And in fact, on a recent event, which is now available on the IRF website, David suggests that China may well, over the next couple of years, launch a preemptive strike on US naval forces in the South China Sea, using hypersonic missiles to take out much of the US carrier fleet. However, he also says that a successful amphibious assault on Taiwan itself is much less likely, particularly in view of the Russian experience in the Ukraine. Now, until very recently, such a prospect would have been dismissed as fantasy. But in the light of 2022's events, almost anything seems possible. And David does have a very good track record when it comes to geopolitics. So you should go onto the IRF website, access the event and make up your own mind on what he's actually saying. Oil and gas prices are going to be absolutely critical driver of financial markets as they were in 2022. China is one big moving part of this equation as the economy moves out of lockdown. And once COVID outbreaks start to subside, then we should see an increased demand. But as I said earlier, given the uncertain secular prospects, it's very uncertain how long this and how how intense this pickup in demand will actually be and whether, in fact, it's already partially discounted. I'll I'll come on to that point in a minute. However, the Russia-Ukraine conflict is clearly the other major driver of energy prices, particularly natural gas this year, but again, in part for oil as well. So the consensus as far as this conflict, which is now effectively between the West and Russia, is now for a prolonged conflict with no breakthrough by either side, despite the fact that everybody now anticipates quite big offensives from both the Russian and Ukrainian sides once the ground starts to harden again in March. As in November, I'd recommend updates from David Roach at Independent Strategy and Niall Ferguson's Green Mantle, both of whom have a very good track record in anticipating developments in the conflict, including predicting the invasion last February at a time when most observers, myself included, were somewhat sceptical that Putin would in fact invade. The latest planned shipment of weapons to the Ukraine, according to David, does not change the equation that we are not arming Kiev to win decisively. So he believes, therefore, the war will be costly and prolonged and could even turn out badly. But the supply of what he terms real tanks, led by the UK, who are talking about sending Challenger tanks, which would then most likely lead to some of the Leopard tanks from some of the European countries, most notably Germany being supplied to the Ukraine, would definitely help, particularly in offensive capacity. And David's message is that the West should not play by Russian rules. So in other words, they should step change up. And indeed, one concept is that the West now has escalation dominance. In other words, if Russia does try and escalate through a dirty bomb or some other form of nuclear or quasi-nuclear retaliation, then the threat of a very, very big retaliation from the West would be so great that they would be likely to back down. So that possibility now appears to have receded. Meanwhile, Greenmantle examined the possibility that Ukraine's dependence on Western assistance will force Zelensky to negotiate. And the conclusion they come up with, exploring several case studies of historical US efforts to withdraw aid, 
as a mechanism for coercing client states to cut peace deals is that this is very unlikely to happen because in the past this has been in circumstances that look very different from the Washington-Kiev relationship. So again, he believes that this conflict is likely to be prolonged and that there will not be an end to the war in the next six months. There's also growing commentary that Russia itself over the medium to long term might threaten to break apart, as it's the national and ethnic minorities within the Russian Federation who are bearing a disproportionate share of the fighting, and it has to be said of the dying as well. So to mitigate this risk, the Kremlin is pursuing a policy of de facto redistribution through state subsidies and grants to lower income groups at the expense of Russia's dwindling middle class and moving Russia closely to a full-blown war economy footing. At any rate, even taking into account this likely scenario of a prolonged conflict through most, if not all, of this year, it's now virtually impossible to find anybody predicting a rally in natural gas prices, either in Europe or the US. And this is in sharp contrast to the situation back in August when people were extrapolating further big increases in natural gas and end user power prices, since when, certainly at the front end of the curve, the natural gas price has declined by something now approaching 80%. And this is therefore another aspect of Putin's strategy that appears to have completely backfired. And so attention now is firmly focused on oil as opposed to gas prices. So a number of providers believe that the main threat to the long bond trade, which appears to be consensus at the start of the current year, comes from the impact of China's reopening on commodity prices, in particular oil. Manoj Pradam at Talking Heads Macro writes about this in a recent report as one of the main reasons underpinning his continuing negative view on inflation. Indeed, to many of us, energy prices are now far more important than central bank policies as drivers of financial markets. In a recent report, or a series of reports, Manoj reviews his five favourite trades of the current year. And given his track record over the past few years, I would recommend that people contact Talking Heads Macro through the IRF and obtain access to Manoj's work. So according to Eurostat figures, the EU has on average reduced demand for natural gas by just over 20% compared to the 2017 to 2021 five-year average from August to November. This is much better than the EU's 15% reduction target and has contributed to European gas storage volumes remaining at a relatively healthy 85% of capacity, despite the recent cold snap. This is from Wolfgang Munchauer's Euro Intelligence, by the way. I'll come on to Wolfgang's work in a minute, but he follows the impact of natural gas prices on the European economy very closely. The reduction in the price of natural gas, which has been moving in the opposite direction to other commodity prices over recent weeks, has provided much needed relief to European governments and households, underpinning the outperformance of European equity markets over the S&P since early November. I recently had the pleasure to introduce Wolfgang Munchau, the founder and CEO of Euro Intelligence, one of the most seasoned and astute observers of ECB policy at a very well-attended client event in London. Wolfgang writes a regular briefing on all aspects of European political economy, including the Russia-Ukraine conflict. 
Interestingly, he believes that the surge in pay demands from mainly blue-collar workers throughout Europe represents a society-wide distributional shift rather than a simple catch-up to the cost-of-living crisis. So he's relatively pessimistic about the prospects for any alleviation of upwards pressure on European interest rates. However, for my part, I do find it difficult to believe that the massive reduction in gas prices that we've seen, particularly if it were to continue, and given the time lag when it feeds through to end power prices and end user prices for household and industry, won't have a stimulative effect relative to the sort of expectations that were prevailing only a few months ago. And I think we're already starting to see this play out, certainly in financial markets, but it will come through, I believe, to the real economy. Although, as Wolfgang's pointed out, the impact on ECB policy is a little bit more complex because there are more moving parts to it. Moving away from natural gas prices to the price of oil, it would seem rational in some ways that oil and natural gas prices are now negatively correlated, given the impact of rising gas prices in depressing economic activity over the past few months, especially in Europe and to a lesser extent Asia. However, IRF provider David Scott, founder of Chatham Advisors, Alithia Capital, sees similar dynamics at work in the oil market as in the natural gas market and lays out what to me appears to be a very convincing bearish case in a two-part report of his strategist diary entitled Pollyanna and the Oil Price. I have a history with David. He was one of the very best sell-side strategists when I was an emerging market equity fund manager in the early 2000s. And it's a real pleasure to re-engage with his work, which is rich in charts and also very tangible examples of individual companies. David picks out the key accounting and investment ratios of individual companies to reach and to illustrate his overall macro conclusions. So he's one of the few people who's able to approach it from both the top down and bottom up. I'm going to just highlight one of David's arguments for scepticism about the consensus for higher oil prices. And he has about 10 arguments altogether, namely the ostensibly low level of inventories. He points out that bear markets don't start when inventories are at their mean or just below their mean, but when they are absolutely at their lows and the International Energy Agency warning us of a crisis. Speculators hide their positions, and the higher prices, the more they hide. As they corner a market, they take inventories out of the places where the likes of the IEA look and hide it somewhere where they don't. This, David believes, is exactly what happened in the natural gas market over the last few months. One of the reasons that the gas prices collapsed is this same pattern of apparent demand being wrongly boosted by speculative and unrecorded stock building. David's view is therefore that Chinese reopening is priced into energy prices to a much greater extent than the consensus currently believes, and he is therefore bearish oil very much against the consensus. So now let's move on to the overall outlook for financial assets just beyond energy prices. The apparent consensus now is long bonds, commodities, including oil, but excluding natural gas, long emerging market assets, and short the US dollar and the US equity market. 
Many of the IRS providers remain skeptical that inflation will move lower in an orderly fashion and predict that US rates will stay higher for longer than the markets are currently anticipating. The obvious corollary of this is that there's likely to be a recession and downwards pressure on earnings, which most providers believe is not currently priced in, in particular to the US market. Two forecasters whose predictions were broadly accurate in 2022 were Manoj Pradham of Talking Heads Macro and Whitney Baker of Totem Macro, so it's worth briefly reviewing their outlooks for 2023. Manoj sees the next few months as going to be primarily about the tussle between China reopening and the hard landing in the US, much as I've just outlined. So he's also long, despite this, of 10-year bonds in the US, Treasury bonds, and also of Chinese equities. But in contrast, he's bearish about the S&P index and believes it will underperform in both absolute or relative terms. He's also long oil and believes that developed markets are much riskier than emerging markets. Now, beyond that, he has some very specific country-based currency fixed income and equity trades to profit from his big picture scenario. And as I say, given his track record, I think it's well worth institutional investors reaching out to manage through the IRF. If we look again at um, Whitney Baker's work in 2023, a report entitled What Has Changed and What Hasn't, She believes that we are still closer to the top of the bubble than the bottom and that the economic resilience expected at these policy settings is continuing. So in other words, rates are likely to stay higher for longer. And this is bad overall or has negative implications for risk assets. She believes that inflation will remain intractable and policy will need to react further. Now, on a more positive note, She continues to believe that even after a 20% rally in the fourth quarter from the year's lows, emerging markets have potential to outperform developed markets by a considerable level over the course of this year. She believes that positioning of investors generally is very supportive in terms of the potential outperformance of emerging markets that they will be able to reduce or relax pressure on interest rates much sooner than their counterparts in developed markets who will have to be tighter for longer with relentless quantitative tightening. So Michael Howell has also been one of the more forceful advocates of emerging market outperformance. And he's also bullish emerging markets in relative terms and more cautiously in absolute terms And his most recent liquidity outlook, emerging market and China liquidity, points to a considerable improvement, appreciable improvement in liquidity conditions in the emerging market uh, universe. So again, Michael's work is very, very granular. He has uh, tables based on liquidity and also based on investor positioning in risk assets. And anybody who follows global markets and manages portfolios in global equity markets in particular really should be looking at Michael's work, particularly given his track record over the last few years. In the opposite camp, though, there are still some providers with underweights in emerging market assets, most notably David Roach's independent strategy and also variant perception 
whose work is based on capital and liquidity cycles and who remain very pessimistic about the overall outlook for risk assets, despite the positive moves over the last two months. My own view as a former emerging market strategist is that whilst the monetary environment might appear more positive for many emerging markets, there's little indication of any widespread improvements in governments at both a sovereign and corporate level. And that's really a sharp contrast to the situation prevailing in 2022 at the dawn of the last big emerging market, bull market. Finally, I just want to say something about active management against index-based management. So I continue to believe that investors should be increasingly targeting absolute returns in contrast to the situation in the aftermath of the great financial crisis when it paid just to have your money locked away in index funds, particularly based on the US equity market. And I'd like again to highlight the work of Steve Holden, Stephen Holden at Copley Fund Research, who monitors publicly available records for portfolios across a range of asset classes. Unfortunately for the active management argument, generally speaking, investors had relatively poor returns, certainly in both absolute and relative return terms for 2022, which he describes for many fund managers as a year to forget. If we take, for example, Asia X Japan, which is quite a prominent category, average returns came in at minus 22.64% in dollar terms of active funds that he monitors, underperforming the MSCI Asia X Japan index by almost 3%, with just over three quarters of the strategies in his analysis underperforming the index. And of course, the reasons for that are fairly clear. The reason being that value outperformed, particularly energy, and a lot of managers were clustered in technology and growth stocks, in particular, obviously, the big Chinese stocks, which they then, a lot of them, unfortunately, lightened going into the rally, which started in November and was very, very dramatic for the last two months of the year. If we look at UK returns, for example, for UK fund managers, he describes that as an annus horribilis, with average fund returns coming in at minus 6%, underperforming the FTSE all-share ETF by 6.6%, which, again, the reasons being very, very similar. Taking longer-term returns for the various fund categories, most of them do look a bit more favourable. But again, once fund fees are taken into account, then there are relatively few categories still where managers manage to outperform the average. So in contrast to what I thought back in 2009 and 2010, I believe that where investors can access absolute return funds, this is still quite a, quite a sensible thing to do. I think the outlook for markets is unlikely to move in a straight line over the course of this year. I think we can still expect considerable volatility going forward. And therefore, I believe that people should be focused on absolute returns and also investing at extremes. So in other words, where you get extreme moves up, selling, and when you get extreme moves down, trying to add to positions. And I think that strategy would have been one that's been very successful since the start of 2020. I'll close there. Thank you for listening. For those institutional investors wishing to engage further with any of the research providers whose work I've cited, or for anything else related to this podcast, 
please do get in touch with me at jp at independentresearchforum.com. Until the next time, goodbye.